all those who humble themselves and follow Christ will enter the kingdom of heaven, be abundantly rewarded, and share equally in the gift of eternal life. You're listening to Wonder Lake Bible Church, building mature followers of Jesus Christ. Find us online at wlbiblechurch.org. Now, here's Pastor Dan Cox with today's message. Well, folks, it's good to be uh, back with you here today. And being back here today, I want you to know I have a fire hose message for you here. Some of you wonder, what's a fire hose message? Well, if you're new here, that a fire hose message means there's going to be a lot coming at you. Like that fire hose, you turn all that water is coming out. There's a lot of scripture here today. But it's a lot of encouragement, though, that I think that you'll find in it as well. You know, someone would ask you, what must I do to receive eternal life? What must I do to enter the kingdom of heaven and receive eternal life? How would you answer that? Believe. Much to do. Believe. That's an excellent answer there, you know, to that. That's right, to believe. But believe what? Believe the gospel, the good news, right? Well, one of our texts in our scripture here today is about a young man who did come to Jesus with there that question. What must he do to be assured of eternal life? And we're going to look at how Jesus answered him. So... On this uh, theme here of eternal life and of the kingdom, uh, here is a term that we hear a lot of in Scripture, is the kingdom of heaven. Uh, We also see it as the kingdom of God. And my understanding of that is some make some distinction, but I believe that the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, these are synonymous terms. They, They mean the same thing. And what is a kingdom? Well, a kingdom is the domain or the realm over which a king rules. So if God is the king, Jesus Christ is the king, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, that therefore is the realm or the domain over which God, Jesus Christ, rules. So when the scriptures speak of the kingdom of heaven, though, there are a number of different aspects to that. In one sense, the kingdom of heaven is Everything, all the creation. Is there anything over which God does not rule or reign? No, he rules. He is the sovereign, majestic, almighty, all-knowing, all-knowing, all-powerful Lord of the universe. So in one sense, the kingdom of God is everything. He rules over all created things. But that's usually not how we see it in Scripture. There's something more particular In other sense, though, the kingdom of heaven, then, is a spiritual kingdom in which God rules over the hearts and the lives of those who are rightly related to him through faith in Christ. It is the kingdom of the redeemed and that sphere of salvation, redemption. In other sense, then, so it is spiritual in a sense, but it is also physical, though, It is physical in that it refers to the, I believe, in one sense, a physical, literal rule of Christ over the earth from Jerusalem, what we call the millennial kingdom. But also, though, it is physical in that it includes all of the physical creation and its freedom from the curse of sin. It is the hope of the new heaven and the new earth. In one sense, it is present tense. In another sense, it is future tense, that it is now and not yet. It is present tense. It is now in that God calls people 
everywhere to humble themselves, to repent, to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and to walk with him in faith and obedience. But it is also future tense, not yet, in that the redeemed people of God do not yet experience the full blessings of their redemption, and the cursed heavens and earth still await their redemption, their freedom from the curse, when God completes the plan of redemption for his people, culminating in a new heaven and a new earth. So the kingdom is many different things. Usually we think of it in terms of that spiritual role and rule of God in the hearts and minds of the redeemed, but it is also, though, a literal physical rule as well when he makes all things new. So we're continuing then in our series here, Unique, the Life, Death, and Resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is a harmony of the Gospels. That is, we are taking all of the Gospel messages, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and combining them together, combining the texts of all four Gospels together into one chronological account of the life and the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are following that order of events as suggested in this book by John MacArthur called One Perfect Life, this harmony of the Gospels then. So continuing in that here today, we're going to be talking about kingdom entrance and blessings. How does one enter the kingdom of heaven? And what are the blessings of the kingdom of heaven? You see, we'll be looking at those passages from Matthew 19, Mark 10, and Luke 18. And you might ask, what is the big idea? What is the main idea that I want us to take away from it here today? And it is this, that all those who humble themselves and follow Christ will enter the kingdom of heaven, be abundantly rewarded, and share equally in the gift of eternal life. So all those who humble themselves, who believe in Christ, follow Christ, they will enter the kingdom of heaven There is abundant reward for them, and all will share equally in the gift of eternal life, which our good and gracious and generous God gives to all who believe. So before we look at our first text here then, a little context, people were eagerly anticipating the arrival of the kingdom. They were anticipating a political king, a political ruler, They were expecting their Messiah would come and he would vanquish their enemies, Rome, and he would restore their nation to greatness. Now, it is true that one day Jesus Christ will indeed rule politically, visibly, tangibly over all the earth. But that is not why he came at his first coming. His first coming was as a humble servant who would bring the gift of eternal life through his sacrifice, his death, and his resurrection. You know, Jesus, though, often taught about the kingdom of heaven and about the nature of the kingdom. As we said, that he taught that there are different aspects to it. And in our text here today, then, the focus is on what God requires of those who would enter the spiritual kingdom of heaven and how God has promised great blessings then for those who humble themselves and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. So our first text then is a harmony then of Matthew 19, verses 13 through 30, Mark 10, 13 through 31, and Luke 18, 15 through 30. We're told here, 
Then little children were brought to him, that he might put his hands on them and pray. But the disciples rebuked those who brought them. But when Jesus saw it, he was greatly displeased and called them to him and said to them, Let the little children come to me and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. And he took them up in his arms, laid his hands on them, and blessed them, and departed from there. So what does God require to enter the kingdom of heaven? Well, first off, we see that entrance to the kingdom requires humility. It requires humility. You know, in those days, parents would seek to bring their young children to their rabbis, their teachers, in order to receive their prayers for those children and the blessings for those children. So parents were eagerly bringing their children to Jesus so that he might pray for them and bless them. Now I wonder, if you had lived then, do you think you might have wanted to bring your young children to Jesus for him to pray for them and bless them? I know I certainly would have. I think all of us here would as well. So people were eagerly doing this. But the disciples see this, and the disciples rebuke these parents. They tell them, hey, 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 stop that. Get away from here. Get away from him. Now, why do you suppose they would do that? Well, it's because they didn't want Jesus to be bothered by them. He was a busy man after all, right? They had a schedule to keep. They had places to go. They had people to see. They had healings to perform. They had lessons to be taught. And he just could not be bothered by all of these young children. After all, they're just kids. They're not that important, right? Or so they thought. So when Jesus saw what the disciples were doing, he was greatly displeased. I like that. That might be a little bit of an understatement. He was greatly displeased. displeased, Meaning what? He was angry with them for doing that. But as often was the case with Jesus, he saw it as an opportunity. It was an opportunity to teach. And so he called the disciples to himself. And he said, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them for of such is the kingdom of heaven. Of such is the kingdom of heaven. I wonder, well, what did Jesus mean when he said that? Well, I think in one sense, the kingdom of heaven does indeed include children, physical little children they too are part of the kingdom of heaven. My conviction is this is true of all children, born and pre-born, that these are young children, but there are also, though, young children who understand the gospel and they believe from a young age and they are, the, they are a part of the company of God's redeemed people. So, There are children 
physical children who are in the kingdom of heaven. Some of them because they have believed from a very young age. Others, perhaps, before they have come to a certain age. It's my conviction that they are a part of the kingdom of heaven as well. But is that what Jesus had in mind, though, do you think, primarily, when he said that? I think that's true, but I don't think that was what Jesus was getting at here. I think what Jesus was getting at here is this attitude that the children represent. And it is an attitude of humility and dependency and trust. So children of such is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is composed of spiritual children. So whether you are 10 or 110, we all must come like little children, humble, dependent, and trusting. So here, this, these children, it refers to those persons who, like little children, humble themselves before God. They recognize their own inadequacy and their helplessness apart from God's grace. So in that sense, then, all, and Jesus said, can you enter the kingdom unless, you cannot enter the kingdom unless you become like one of these little children. So all who would enter the kingdom must become like children. That is, they must humble themselves before God, recognize their dependency and their inadequacy. Humility, then, is required before one can enter the kingdom of heaven. Listen again to these words of Jesus. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. That's a pretty definitive statement, isn't it? So what does God require? What must I do to enter the kingdom of heaven? What must I do to have eternal life? Well, first off, what must we do? Humble ourselves. Acknowledge our need. Acknowledge our dependency. We don't go to God with the spirit of confidence in ourselves and say, God, look how good I am. Look what I have to offer to you. No, we don't have anything to offer to him, do we? We humble ourselves like a little child. There's something else we need to consider. Goes on and we're told, Now behold, as he was going out on the road, a certain ruler came running, knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may receive eternal life? So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is, God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now he could have gone on and on and on, couldn't he? But he just gives kind of a representative list. Which ones? Well, Shelley said it a minute ago. All of them, right? Do you want eternal life? 
What, what must I do? Well, keep all the commandments. Obey. Hmm. How would you have responded to that if you were that young, the young man and you had gone to Jesus and he told you that? Some of us would probably say, uh-oh, right? But not this young man. Look at what he says. The young man answered and said to him, all these things I have kept from my youth. Really? What do I still lack? So when Jesus heard these things, he looked at him, loved him, and said to him, one thing you still lack, go your way, sell whatever you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, take up the cross, and follow me. But when the young man heard this, He was sad at this word, and he went away sorrowful, for he was very rich and had great possessions. See, the first time, oh, yeah, 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 I've done all that. Do you think he really had perfectly obeyed all of that? No, but he thought he had. So Jesus, because he knows all things, doesn't he? He identifies something, okay, He called him out, right. He called him out. And he knew when Jesus said that, he couldn't say, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, sure, okay. He knew he couldn't do that. So the entrance to the kingdom of heaven requires humility. And might I suggest one of the reasons why it requires humility is because of another requirement. If we're going to enter the kingdom of heaven, if we're going to have eternal life, if we're going to live forever in his presence, the kingdom of heaven also requires moral perfection. Uh-oh, who's saying uh-oh now, right? You want eternal life? That's why we need to... Shelly, I think we need to get you up here and preach here, right? So that's why we need eternal life, right? Or that's what, yeah, that's why, we need, that's why we need a savior, Right? So the kingdom of heaven requires humility, but it also requires moral perfection. And as I have said before on a number of occasions, you want God to require perfection in order to enter his kingdom. Because if he didn't require perfection, what would you have? This. Is, it, is this what you'd want to live in forever and ever and ever? No. No. So here was this earnest, religious young man who no doubt he wanted to do right. I think he wanted in his heart, he wanted to do right. And he wanted to be sure that he would receive eternal life. And so like so many people, he says, what? What must I do? You see, and this is the idea of so many people. They think, how do we, how do we attain salvation? How do we, well, there's certain things you have to do. And I would agree, there are things we have to do. What do we have to do? Well, we have to obey all the commandments of God. Uh-oh. Aren't you glad the story doesn't end there, though? 
So, you know, this young man, he may very well have been a good person by the world's standards of what is good. But sadly, he represents an attitude that many have, though, today even, right? An attitude of self-sufficiency and works righteousness. And he was blind. He was blind to his own sinfulness. But he says something to Jesus here that's interesting. You might wonder. He says, he says, he comes to Jesus and he says, good teacher. And Jesus says something that can be a little confusing at first. He says, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, God. Hmm. His, Jesus' response is a little confusing, isn't it? Why do you call me good? No one is good but God. And they, well, well, wait a minute. I thought that Jesus is God. And at first glance here, it looks as though Jesus is denying that he is God. Why do you call me good? Only God is good. So why does he say that? Well, I think he is saying that in order to get this young man to think through the implications of his statement in correctly calling Jesus good. Good teacher? Oh, why do you call me good? Only God is good. So rather than denying that he is God, Jesus is affirming that he is God. In effect, he is saying, if we might paraphrase a little bit, you know, it's interesting that you call me good because no one is good. You're not good, young man. <laughs> no one is good. Only God is good, but yet you call me good. And in fact, Jesus speaking, I am good. So if no one but God is good, and Jesus says he is good, therefore he is what? God. It's a syllogism. Ralph loves those, right? So, but that's what it is. Only God is good. Jesus is good. Only God is good. Therefore, Jesus is God. So he's not denying that he's God. He's affirming it, actually, and causing this young man to think about that and reflect on that. But then Jesus says something else that might be a little startling here to us. Okay, what, 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 what good thing must I do to have eternal life, to enter the kingdom? And he says, if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. There you go. Keep the commandments. If you want to enter into eternal life, in other words, what? Be morally perfect. Oh, is that all? Who might be a little discouraged at this point? Might think, okay, humble myself, but perfectly obey all of God's commandments. Good luck with that, right? But this young man, though, he's quite confident in himself, isn't he? Oh, yeah, yeah, he, Jesus lists these things. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness, defraud, honor your father and mother, love your neighbor as yourself. Oh, yeah, 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 Jesus, I'm good. Yeah, I got all that. But yet something, though, interestingly enough, though, 
Something was going on in him that he sensed, though, that maybe there was something. He just wanted to be sure, I think, right? He wanted to be sure. And so Jesus says something then to test this young man's heart. That is, when, we, when God tests, what is he doing? He's bringing something out. He's revealing the truth that he might deal with it in us, right? <laughs> so he says something in order to test this young man's heart. And in the process, he reveals to this young man, you're not so great at obeying all the commandments as you think you are. In fact, here's, here's one that you fall short on. But isn't it interesting, the text tells us, though, before Jesus says that, do you know Jesus' attitude toward this young man? He looked at him and he what? He what? He loved. loved him. Do you love the lost? Jesus does. Can you feel the great love and the compassion and I think sadness that there must have been in Jesus' heart for this young man? Jesus knew what was in his heart. And what did he see? Greed, materialism. I'm sure there was other stuff too. (laughs) But he saw that. You might wonder, is this text teaching that we all must sell everything we have and give it away to the poor? No. What was Jesus doing here? He was identifying a problem in this young man's life that had to do with Greed and materialism and idolatry. That he loved his riches more than he loved people. And he showed then, too, that he loved his riches more than he loved God because he went away and wouldn't do that. He went away sad. He loved his possessions more than he loved the poor. You know, I wonder, did he later come to understand, repent, believe, follow Jesus? I don't know, but I hope so. You know, again, some of us here might also be a little sad and confused at this point. You're saying, humble yourself? Okay, I get that. I understand that. But be morally perfect? How can I obey the commandments, keep all the commandments perfectly? Well, even Jesus said, no one is good. No one can do that. No one can be. So how can anyone enter the kingdom then? Well, I'm glad you asked that. Because look at what Jesus says next. And when Jesus saw that, he became very sorrowful when he saw this young man's sorrow and walking away. He became very sorrowful. He looked around and he said to his disciples, Assuredly, I say to you that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And the disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. And again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle 
than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And when his disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished, saying among themselves, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said to them, with men, it is impossible, but not with God, for with God, all things are possible. Entrance to the kingdom requires humility. It requires moral perfection, and therefore, it is possible only by God's grace. Only by God's grace. How can anyone be saved if God requires perfection? By God's sovereign, all-wise, gracious power. That's how. It's a gift, that moral perfection, isn't it? A great gift. So Jesus teaches his disciples in this moment that people must humble themselves in order to be saved. But he says, what? but that can be very difficult for a rich person to do. Because why? Well, they may well be trusting in themselves or their riches. They may then, they do not see their need. They do not recognize their inadequacy and their need for a savior. Now, is it true that a whole lot of poor people also do not see their need or recognize their inadequacy? Yes. It doesn't have anything to do with whether one has great riches or not. The issue is not, but he's just saying what? For someone who has great riches, it can be very, very difficult for them to see their need then. And they may trust in themselves and their possessions and all that they have. And in fact, he says it's, uh, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person, that is, for one who is trusting in themselves to enter the kingdom of heaven. I am not, I know this is going to shock some of you, I don't sew. I don't know, I, it's like, like if a button comes off a shirt, you know what I do? Throw the shirt away. <laughs> I don't know how to put a button on how many of you think that's really pathetic? It, yeah, it is terribly pathetic, I know, right? That's true. I know, this Navy man back here, he knows how to put a button on, doesn't he? Absolutely. So, no, I, I don't. But even I know that the eye of a needle, of a sewing needle, is really small. And can you imagine a camel going through, walking through that eye? What? It is utterly and completely impossible, and yet Jesus says what? Oh, it's easier for a camel to do that than it is for someone what, who's trusting, in not, not being rich, but what? Who's trusting in their riches to enter their kingdom. In other words, what? It's totally impossible. And the disciples are astonished by this. Why? Because they had this idea it was a common thought in their day that material riches, blessings like this, that this was a sign of God's favor on a person. And I would say sometimes that may be indicative of God's favor or blessing, but certainly not always, right? In fact, sometimes wealth or riches can be a great stumbling block. Often they can be a great stumbling block, right? But people in those days, they thought, that riches or wealth were a sign of God's favor 
So say what? So even these folks, it's impossible for them to be saved? The disciples went, well, if they can't be saved, well, well, who then can be saved? How can anybody be saved? And Jesus, that's when Jesus says what? Well, with man, with us, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. How is it possible to be morally perfect? In ourselves, it's impossible, isn't it? Unless God supplies the very thing he requires and gives it to us as a gift. That's why we need a savior. So the message of this text is not every believer must go out and sell all of their possessions and give them to the poor. Nor is this message that only the rich need God's sovereign, all-wise, gracious power in order to be saved. Now, the message is, is that anyone, rich or poor, must be saved. How? By God's gracious power. Peter starts to feel a little sorry for himself, but, but, but Lord, what about us? Look at me, look at everything that we've sacrificed for you. Text tells us, then Peter began to say to him, see, we have left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? So Jesus answered and said, assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, or when he makes all things new, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake and the gospel's and for the sake of the kingdom of God shall receive a hundredfold now in this present time. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last. And the last first So here we see that sacrifice for the kingdom will be abundantly rewarded. First, it will be abundantly rewarded in this life, but also with eternal life. See, Peter points out here that that he and the other disciples there, the 12, that they've left all in order to follow him. They've left behind their jobs, their homes, their lands, and for a time, their families in order to follow Jesus. But Jesus assured Peter, and even us here today, that those who sacrifice for the kingdom will be abundantly rewarded. He's told that Peter and the other disciples, the 12, they will have positions of rule and authority over the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, you and I are not going to sit on those 12 thrones ruling over the 12 tribes of Israel, but that doesn't mean that we're not going to receive because notice he goes on to say all those, though, will be rewarded amply, a hundredfold. 
See, we will be amply rewarded for any and all sacrifices we have made for the kingdom. And might I suggest, by the way, when we say making sacrifices, maybe it's a a difficult decision. Maybe it does. It means leaving something, having to give something up in order to be faithful to Christ, a higher calling on our lives. That when we do that, it may be hard, but we come to see in the end, you know what? Was it really such a great sacrifice after all? Perhaps not. We will be abundantly rewarded in this life. God blesses those who sacrifice for him. What does this mean when he says if they've given up houses and lands and brothers and sisters, mothers, fathers, wives, children? Well, I think he's referring to, okay, we, you may not have those biological relationship like you, you, you might want to have, but you have the spiritual family of the church. You have many brothers and sisters, fathers, mothers, children in the church and the blessings of God in that. You think, well, oh, well, that sounds great. That's in the present time. Houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and lands with persecutions. Well, boy, I tell you, that was sounding great until he got to that part about persecutions, right? But yes, there even is blessing in persecution. Eternal blessing in that. So sacrifice for the kingdom will be abundantly rewarded in this life and it will be rewarded with eternal life in the age to come. Because of course, the greatest blessing The greatest reward of all is what? Eternal life. Eternal life does not mean endless existence. Now, it it does, in fact, mean a life that never ends, but that's not the point of eternal life. It doesn't mean live forever. It means what? It's eternal life as opposed to what? Eternal death, eternal judgment, eternal condemnation. It's eternal life blessing and joy and goodness in the presence of God forever and ever. That's eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. I think there are two senses of those words of Jesus in Scripture. On the, on the one hand, it means that those who may be considered great in this world will be considered least in the eternal state. But there's another sense here that I think Jesus is referring to here because he then tells a parable to illustrate his point. I think what he is saying here when he says the first will be last and the last will be first is that all citizens of the kingdom, all believers will share equally in the great blessing of eternal life in the kingdom. It does not matter when you entered the kingdom or how hard you worked for it as compared to someone else, all will share equally in the generous goodness of God in the giving of eternal life. You sure about that? Well, let's listen to this parable of Jesus in which he makes precisely this point. This is our final text for today. How's that fire hose coming on? You wet yet here with us? All right. Jesus said, for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning 
to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, You go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? And they said to him, Because no one has hired us. And he said to them, You go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them, for their wage, pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the 11th hour came, it's important to know the work day was what, six, about 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. So some had been working from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. all day. Some were hired at the 11th hour. That's what? 5 p.m. They'd only worked for an hour. A denarius was a day's wage. He says, so those then who hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received what? One-twelfth of a denarius? No, they received what? A full day's wages, a denarius. Now, if you've been hired first and you've been there at 6 a.m., what are you thinking? Wow, look at what those people got. Now, when those hired first came, they thought that they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, these last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to the last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So, the last will be first, and the first last. So, our generous God gives eternal life to all, regardless of how long they've believed, or how long they have worked for the kingdom. Now, some of you are saying, well, that's not fair. That's not fair. This person has believed and has been a faithful follower of Jesus all their life, and then this person comes to faith at at the last hour. Will they get eternal life too? I think there's a few problems with that mentality or that way of thinking. Ungrateful, right? You might say, well, that's not fair. But can't our good, generous God give the wonderful gift of eternal life to someone no matter when they believed? Whether they believed as a child and faithfully obeyed all the days of their life or if they came to Christ on their deathbed after a long life of sinful rebellion. He graciously gives the gift of eternal life. So for those of us who may be a little hung up on the fairness issue in this parable, 
few thoughts first off this. I am very glad that God is not fair with me. Do you really want God to be fair with you? And think very carefully about that before you answer that question. Understand, too, this is referring to the gift of eternal life. All share equally in that. That said, will there be varying levels of heavenly reward depending on how we have lived our lives for Christ? Yes, of course. But this parable is not about that. There are other parables that address that. This is about the gift of eternal life, that it is for all, no matter when they believed or how they came, whether they came at the first hour or the last. God is generous to give the gift of eternal life to all who come. Now, I could say a little more on that, but I'm not going to because I think that's enough for now. So what? What should we do? Well, I want to remind us, all those who humble themselves and follow Christ will enter the kingdom of heaven, be abundantly rewarded, and share equally in the gift of eternal life. First thing I say, enter the kingdom. What must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to enter the kingdom? Humble yourself. Repent. Trust in Christ and his life, his perfect obedience to the law, his sacrificial death, his victory, his resurrection. Enter the kingdom through humble faith in Christ. Labor faithfully in the kingdom. Some of you got hired at 6 a.m. and you've borne the heat of the day. Some of us came at noon. Some came at five. But whenever you came, labor faithfully and rejoice in the privilege that is yours to know God, to have the hope of eternal life, and know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. And finally then, rejoice. Rejoice in the generosity of our God. That there are temporal rewards, that is, rewards here and now for following him. By the way, Jesus never shies away from the wonder of reward. Some of us feel a little guilty that we should want reward. Well, God wants us to want that. But what? To want it because he rejoices in that when we are seeking him, following him. He rejoices. He wants to reward you. And it honors him. Do you love to give good gifts to your children, parents? Temporal rewards, eternal rewards are accrued now. But eternal life, the greatest reward of all, is for all who believe, no matter when they came. So come today. Today is the day of salvation. Right? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this hope that we have in Jesus Christ. I know this is a lot for us to, to digest, to, to consider here, Lord. But Lord, we do humbly acknowledge our inadequacy, that we are not good. There is only one who is good. That is you, Lord. You, Lord Jesus Christ. You alone are good. We cannot perfectly keep the commandments. But we thank you that you have kept them for us. 
And that as we humble ourselves, we repent and turn from sin, we receive and believe in your perfect life, your perfect obedience for us. We thank you for that, Lord. We are credited with your righteousness through faith. May we then labor faithfully in the vineyard, no matter when we've entered the vineyard. May we labor faithfully, knowing that our labor for you is never in vain and that we will rejoice forever and ever and ever with all of your people in the gift of eternal life. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's message. For more information about Wonder Lake Bible Church, visit wlbiblechurch.org.